Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of Technique with me, Sam Fry. As you may have spotted, this episode also has a new theme tune. I've had some time off work over the last few weeks, so I decided to clip together some snippets of previous episodes. I like it, but let me know your thoughts too. As always, you can contact us on Twitter on at Technique UK. Now, as for this episode, we have a really special guest. This time coming from California. Here he is to introduce himself. My name is Ash Thorpe and I am a designer, a director, illustrator, do a lot of different things and I mainly work in the feature film industry and I also work on video games. Yes, our guest today is Ash Thorpe. Ash is a prolific designer who works as an illustrator, graphic designer and creative director. He works a lot in film but also on video games and with commercial companies. He gained some attention a few years ago when he created the user interfaces and other design work for both the films Ender's Game and Total Recall. But then he's also been part of design teams for films such as Prometheus, X-Men First Class and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So if that wasn't enough, Ash also hosts The Collective Podcast where he talks to creatives such as visual effect artists, designers, illustrators and programmers, a little bit like some of these episodes. We talk a lot about his work in this episode, plus we explore how he manages his creative output. I really enjoyed recording this episode and I hope you like it too. So without further ado, here is Ash talking about how he got involved in graphic design. I got involved with graphic design and being creative from a really early on age. I grew up without a lot of like privilege or excess of material objects. So what I didn't have in my childhood, I filled with an imagination. I grew up mostly in, in Hawaii, but all over the States. And so I'd be using my imagination. I would go out into nature and do all those kinds of things. And then, you know, pens and paper and stuff were at the ready anytime I needed. So those were a cheap and effective tool to keep me busy. So my, my mom would constantly, you know, encourage my art and my, my, my family, my mom as well, my brother, my grandma, all my really close immediate family were all very good artists. So it was kind of a common place to do that. And so I've just basically been repeating what I've been doing since I was a kid and I continue that. And I think that's why I carry so many different titles all the way from directing to creating things to designing. And I don't like to put myself in a box because I'm literally 
just the same kid. I'm just older now. And so I've just evolved my craft and I kept working at it. So, and it all just kind of naturally flows. I was, I was one of the very privileged and lucky people to know and find their passion at a very early age. And then I've just stuck with it since then. And it's been an amazing journey. What kind of things were you doing when you were, when you were a kid and were there particular work that you were creating? When I was a kid, the kind of work that I would create, like art, it would, it would, a lot of it was just like pencil drawings. You know, we all kind of start with that. I can remember a great, fond memory if I look back at a certain particular time when I was a kid drawing. My mom was a limousine driver for some time out in Hawaii, and I would, I would stay, I'd go from school and I'd stay at her like um, dispatch office, and they would have these long pieces of paper, and I'd tape them together, and I'd make these huge, like six-foot long taped together scenes with these, these little cities and little scenes and things going on in them and I would just draw these massive I wish I still had them, I don't think I have them anymore when magic cards were really big I never understood the game but I was really loved the art so I got really into to that stuff and obviously like you know I was a big comic fan like you know, Tom McFarlane Spawn stuff, all the X-Men stuff so it was more or less in the beginning it was like creating my own worlds and a lot of mimicry and kind of just seeing what was out there and, and, and recreating it my own was kind of my outlet. Were you a doodler as well? Were you a kind of kid in a classroom doodling your way through the lessons? Yeah, as a kid, when I was in class, I was I was two things. When I was young, I was actually quite shy. Eventually, I came into my own, and I was more or less the class clown. But I was I, I grew up in kind of either the ghetto or very adverse situations, you know. So I'd be like the only like white kid in the class, you know. So I'd either get picked on. So what I would have to do is show people like, hey, I'm an artist. And then they would go, oh, Ash is cool. He can draw. Like, he'll draw something cool for me. And then that's how I encountered my friendships. And so it was kind of like a nice mix. But in class, I, I was always drawing or something. It was, I, I was in special education for like five years of my education. I, I have dyslexia and like learning, you know, people say that quote unquote learning disabilities and stuff. I think it was more or less my ability to connect with the subject matter. I was just when it was came to science or something that was really fantastical for me to learn, or if the teacher was engaging, I would obviously pay attention. But things like math or things that were a little too abstract or disconnected from my attention, I would just lose sight of them. But the things I really liked, I was, was completely focused on them, like any kid, you know. So leaving school, I was trying to map out your career, kind of get, jumping through different websites. And it can be quite difficult because... I guess when you're working on quite a lot of films or things that might go through a production period, the dates they come out or the dates you might be working on them could be different. So I, I was trying to kind of trace it back. Did you go to university or did you go and was it kind of a lot of self-taught study? Yeah, I did go to university. So I went to high school. I moved out from living with my mom at age 14. So I moved out quite young. And then I lived at my dad's dad's house, and it was odd, oddly enough, I lived. He was a sponsor for Alcoholics Anonymous, and and so he basically, all my roommates were these grown men who had fractured their lives and then come out of it. So I was living with those guys when I was in high school. Long story short, is my dad was always very persistent on me finishing things and wanting me because he was always afraid that I wasn't going to amount to something of worthy, you know. So. I, I went to college to silence that worry for him. I didn't feel like I really felt like I needed it or wanted to do it. I did it for for him, and it was also a way for me to further my education. But I didn't go 
I really wanted to go like to a very prestigious college from a very early age because I knew who I was and what I wanted to do. I knew that there was no joking around or playing around. I wanted to just do the best that I could and, and go to the best school and all that stuff. But at the time, it was the art center. I really wanted to go there, but it's like it was a hundred plus thousand dollars for for tuition there, and I simply could not afford it. So I ended up going just to like local universities. And, um, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's not like the best. You don't have the most incredible teachers, but there were great people. I really enjoyed them as people. My teachers were great. I have an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree. And honestly, I don't even remember in what. It was like design or fine art or something. But to me, it doesn't matter. The thing is that now I learn primarily based on my own curiosity. And I learn off the Internet like incessantly i'm constantly learning and i learn so much more off the the resources that the internet provides so it's like i call it a university of google <laughs> i think that's how most people learn most things i i've been recently trying to learn to code using processing the best way to learn a lot of that is is actually youtube i think now oh, yeah. there's so much content on there what were you working on initially? And I know my, my understanding is your work on Ender's Game was probably a bit of a break for you. Is that right? And yeah. if you could tell me kind of how how you went from self-study as well as, you know, studying at university to getting to that yeah. point, how did that all come about? In Southern California, the big commerce for artists is going to be like action sports, basically. So it's going to be like skateboard companies, surfboard companies, all that stuff. There's a there's a little bit of a hub down here. So the first job that I got out of college, I got before I graduated, actually, was a job being a designer at a wakeboard company. And so I ended up working there for, I can't remember, like maybe eight months or maybe even a year. And then I got really anxious. I was, I was worried that I... I liked the job and the people were, were really nice and I got along with everybody and it was like, it was a good place, but I could see myself spending time there that I would have wanted to not, you know, I, I was, I didn't want to have regrets. So I knew deep down that I really, when I'd watch a movie, I'd get excited about it and would really invigorate me and make me excited. So I, I knew that my heart was in making movies or being a part of that in some capacity so I went for broke, and um, I made a portfolio, and I sent it out to all the studios, and I got hired by a studio called Prologue. It was run by Kyle Cooper, who's um, like a savant, and he does a lot of these amazing title sequences, and his, his work in his studio, the work that the studio makes is, is amazing. They hired me as a junior designer, and I basically would commute every day from San Diego to L.A., and that was a, I call that my year of pure potential. Uh, it was a year, and I basically would be like a four-hour commute. I would work about 10, 12-hour days, and it was just a really insane time in my life because I, I went from a kind of a mediocre, simple life, the 9-to-5 kind of design job, to working with, in my opinion, who were some the best talent in the world at what they did and, and seeing what that craft was and all that stuff. So from that, from, from working at Prologue, it really kind of like, it was like boot camp for a year. And it really showed me how to make great work and how to, I learned a lot of good habits and a lot of bad habits there. One of them is I'm a workaholic now and I, and I don't blame them from that. It's just, that's just kind of how it works. And, and I'm, I don't settle. I always constantly want to push for the best thing possible every time. But after leaving Prologue, I had a couple jobs that were there that I made a nice portfolio out of. And I used that portfolio and then I went off and did freelance. I worked at, I helped a friend out at his studio for a bit. He hired me and I worked for him for a little bit after that, after I left Prologue. But I knew deep down that I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to run my own thing. I wanted to work for, for directors and all that stuff my own. 
So I went off and I think a lot of it was due, like the way that things aligned was a lot of it was due to just being ambitious, putting yourself out there. Because what was happening is I was getting hired to be a freelancer, but I would have to commute back to L.A. to go work on office and I'd work for studios like Digital Domain and all that stuff. And how I got the job on, on an Ender's Game is I was going into Digital Domain and I was there and I was working on a job doing some kind of design graphic stuff for like, I don't know, some kind of Microsoft job or something. And I saw these guys in this room and all this art around them. And I was like, wow, what's this? I went and I just introduced myself and, and I talked with them and they were telling me what it was. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. I and mean, this is fascinating. So I ended up just talking with them just out of pure love of art and then hit it off with them. And then the, 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 the lead guy at Digital Domain, he was kind enough and said, hey, Ash is really good. You should really think about bringing him on board for Ender's Game because I think he would be amazing to build out the world for that. And then, you know, one thing led to another and my work ethic is, is insane and I'm constantly pushing. So I ended up being on Ender's Game when the script is being built. So I was on there which is very weird. It's I was on Ender's Game in production for about a year and a half, which is a very long time. I was in pre-production and post-production. So I designed all this stuff and was working with Gavin and with and Gavin's the director and, and a lot of stuff. And then uh, I was on set. I taught, <laughs> I even taught uh, Asa, who's the, the lead who plays Ender, like how to do gestures because we didn't want him just to do flailing his arms around. We had to create a language. So I created like a gesture language that would uh, then, you know, become formation language in the design and stuff. So it was a huge project, and it was one of the first film projects that I had, that I had ever worked on as a freelancer. And from there, you know, in more and more steps, if, you, if you're constantly curious, humbled, and now I got there. <laughs> I don't know, if it was me, I'd be really intimidated by the breadth of types of design work that you were doing on Ender's Game in that case. If you're going through that in a year and a half, I guess learning something like how to design for gestures... I, I know people that work in the, the software industry and there's, I guess, more and more thinking about gesture control design. But actually to imagine that, and I think I, I saw somewhere else you, you talk about when designing kind of user interfaces for film, really you're trying to look at the experience and that visual experience for the, the person viewing it. So it's not just about the gestures. There's a lot to think about in with it being your first big break in that whole world. When you're taking on a project as big as a feature film and one that has a legacy like Ender's Game, there's there's always a bit of fear or doubt or risk involved. But I think that that's part of the formula and you kind of need that to really embrace the work and actually really embrace the idea of like, how am I going to do this? And using that to kind of fuel your creative juices through the hardships that you're going to encounter. So. Absolutely. And I, I think with, you know, a project as complicated and vast as Ender's Game, it, it's kind of like you take it one day at a time and you focus on, you know, things as they come. And you just do your best to kind of, you know, work with what you have daily. And, you know, you come up, there's a, there's a problem that comes up, oh, you know, what well, Ender has to have, you know, it has to have a gesture here or he interacts with this pad here. You know, a lot of the times when you're making UI or designs for films, it's totally different from the real world. If it were to, you would not want to interact with a machine like that, I think, in the real world. You'd basically want to lay in a chair and have AR, basically, and use hand gestures rather than full body gestures and stuff, in my opinion. But when you're doing it for the big screen, you want to really you know, create this huge, fantastical, whimsical experience. So you're, you're, it's, it's a totally different experience, I think. And it's a totally different design challenge. So 
what's the team structure and the you know what's your ability as an individual artist in that in that world every project is like a relationship and it's like a fingerprint they're all different and the interactions you have are different the director's different the story's different when i come into the place the production's different with ender's game it was like right in pre-production with like assassin's creed or a total recall they had already shot the film and they just needed to fill in what they didn't have Every director is different. Some are more finicky, some are more trustworthy, some are more hands-on, some are more hands-off. The methods that I've tried to work with when it comes to working on films and stuff is you basically get on the best page possible on your first touch with the film. The director, you basically put your best work forward. That allows you to control it a lot more. So I will put all my best ideas out and I will present them in the best way possible and then just try to hit a home run. And once I win that trust of the director, because the director, for the most part, are insanely busy. And the last thing that they want to do is hire somebody that they have to hold their hand. They want to hire somebody who's smarter than them or better than them at that craft so that they could focus on other things. Because most of the time, directors don't care about the detail minutia of certain things. They just need to tell a story. And that's their job. They're just kind of shifting the story, pushing the story. How can they most effectively tell a story? They're not worried about what typeface I'm using, all that kind of stuff, you know. That's my job. That's my job to worry about that. And and I communicate that clearly with my directors, having directed things myself. And ever, through the years with each project, I've done my best to try and create the best experience for my directors because at the end of the day, that's that's my job. They're my client. And, and, the, and the closest I can get to them and, cl- and the closest I can work with them, the better. How much of it is prototyping and how much... Is it dependent on different people reviewing the work as it as it builds up? When the process for making films begins, it's basically once I've agreed to get on the job and the budget works and, and we've all said, okay, we're all going to do this together and this is, you know, when things are due and all that stuff, I basically do out a roadmap of like, okay, this is going to be done when and all that X amounts. You always start, for me, you always start with obviously obvious communication and then talking about references or inspiration, muse, big ideas, concepts, getting all that, taking all as much information as I can, digesting that, and then I'll take a piece of it, the one that I, I, I connect with most, and I'll make a design or a pitch or an idea. Once I get that approved, then it goes into the next stage of production, which is usually going to be animation or CGI or vis effects and all that kind of stuff. And depending on the film, usually what it'll be is it'll be me and then I'll hire a friend, somebody I know or I trust. I'm not big on working with like lots of people. I don't like managing people like that. I'm not really good at it. So I'll just hire like a friend and they'll take over the animation part. I direct them through the animation part and then we will basically keep working until the director is happy. We take all that content information and then we hand that off to like a VisFX team who then keys it into track shots and they put it into the film and they all do all the VisFX stuff, which is comp work and all that stuff, compositing and stuff. So that's how it's generally happened when it comes to design and UI and these things for film and stuff. That's been the typical process. And how much do you need to understand, I guess, the, the ways of working of some of those other teams? So if you've got a essentially a handover point there's certain requirements that they they need how much of that is a collaboration or how much is it okay this is what we've got take it interpret it how does that bit yeah when it comes to the technical side of production when you do a handoff to a vis team before i even do that i make sure that i have a talk with their lead 
VizFX supervisor and I ask them, okay, what kind of sequences do you want? Do you need 16-bit? What resolution are we working with? What frame rate are we working with? What's the duration of the shots? Usually I do get, I get a nice shot list, usually via Google um, spreadsheet or whatever, and you just kind of work through it. It's the... It's the part of production I really don't like and don't care for, but it's definitely an important part in delivering all those things. You know, some, some shops need Kaleida files and some shops need FBX sequences and some of them need EXR 16-bit or 32-bit or depending on the resolution and stuff. So it all kind of just depends on the client and what they need. But I almost, I mean, I always have a conversation with the VizFX shop before I do an interview or before I do the project with them. I think when I was younger, or once I got into the industry, I was thinking that I ultimately wanted to be a director. Every day I kind of question that and wonder if that's really what I want to do or if I want to be like a director of photography or if I want to just continue being a quote-unquote designer. I don't know. I mean, I learn all the time. And one of the things that I enjoy about working on these films, I don't look at it as a job. I look at it as a learning experience. With each director I work with, I learn a little bit about how they process things, how they maneuver situations. Um, from the brief windows of time that I have with them, I kind of learn that process. I take all that information in, and then I put it into my own career. Not in a weird way. I just I just use it as almost something like, oh, that person did that. And But the, to be honest, at the end of the day, I just make the films that I make because it's almost like the films that I make now are already made in my head. Like Eventually, I just get them done. So I just I just build them out really, and it just feels like they're it's like a natural it's like breathing kind of. So I think that's really when I'm in harmony of creating is like it's not that it's effortless. It's very difficult to make them, but at the same time, like there there's no compromise, and that's the one thing I love about the purity of making my own work is I have no compromise. I'm not answering to somebody, or I don't have somebody's opinion um, tampering my own creativity in a sense not like that's not like I'm not open for criticism but when I make my own work as a as I direct my own things personally as I make films completely my own I just like making them for therapy almost you know a release just to make something the kind of work I like to do nowadays is going to be probably mostly around just working with really good people, smart people, people that challenge me, pe projects that challenge me, not just from a technical standpoint, but also like, you know, getting me critically thinking about things. I just finished working on a really powerful documentary. It's the first documentary I worked on and I, I really enjoy the film and that was really, it was a very difficult job and it was probably one of the challenge, most challenging technically jobs that I've ever done. So I'm very excited about getting that one out to the world. But nowadays, if I had to choose, it would. I, I've been trying to do this split. I try to split my year half. I do six months of really intense hard work on top client stuff. And I take all that money and then I just spread it through the whole year. And then I like to take the other part of the year to just go do some photography, learn new CGI tools and different things so I can then take all those things and, and build out my own projects. And I'm going to start making a big shift in my creative kind of energy and flow and I'm going to start working in Unity or Unreal Engine, probably Unity, but I'm going to start building games or experiences and getting into that realm because I, in my opinion, I see that as being the, the true future of, of creative consumption, basically. So. So in the in London at the moment at the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum, they've got a games exhibition, but it's actually it's all about the process of making games. So it's That's cool. Uh, so it's a design museum, and, it, and it's 
instance anyway, but it's great. They've, they've got a lot of the original storyboards behind games and then they, they go into some of the initial artwork and they explore different different areas of you know how AI is being used in in games, for instance. They look at kind of character development, the actual scenery. Um, it, is a, it is a really interesting world. And I guess gaming generally is is becoming recognised more and more as an art form in itself. I guess the other part of that is as well, when you play a lot of video games now, it's like you're taking part in a film. A lot of them are really narrative-based. It's not like the kind of old platform games or whatever that, you know, you appear on a level and you, you go and try and get to the end. Is that what interests you? Is it the is it the story parts of, of gaming? What what's, what's the bit that makes you want to work more and more in, in that whole area? Uh, I'd say, like, the things that make me excited or interested in shifting my attention towards games is I don't even look at them as games like when I grew up I was, it was like Super Mario you know like the, the Super Nintendo or the, like their first original Nintendo system was kind of what you played in it was those games were all about you know pressing the right button at the right time and th- those games I don't really like to play I don't like to play those games anymore because they're more or less frustrating <laughs> so the games I like to play now are more or less like I wouldn't necessarily say that they need to have a narration. I do enjoy a game that's more or less ambiguous about that and allows you to kind of fill in the blanks and, and experience. So I've just recently played two games that I think have really changed me in my approach to how I look at games. Two of them, one of them is called Journey. It's a really beautiful game. And it's quite brilliant, and it's almost like it's. I wouldn't even call it a game. It's the same problem we have with terminology for things like you know Netflix or all these streaming applications. They're not television, really. They're they're like streaming. They're, they're, there's there's a different. They're like, there's like something. They're just different, you know. And so I kind of look at these as just being different experiences. And so Journey, and then I just played Inside, which is brilliant, super brilliant game, and. I love the the mechanics and how ambiguous things are, and just the world and the problem solving and the and just kind of going through things. And I and and the thing I also love and admire about that game is the style in which they use. They don't. It's like one thing I love about like Tim Burton's films, like they're filled with style. And I think that you use the method of the the technology to make a style rather than. I really don't like it when games to go full cinematic because it's like okay, well you're not too far away from movies, and I've already experienced that. I get the idea that you know it needs to. Be be a narration kind of like a pick your own adventure which i think is really cool too but games and the engines and the technology are still quite far away from being photoreal so it just feels like some kind of weird uncanny valley so yeah so i have a lot of thoughts on games and stuff because i'm really curious about it it's definitely a world that i'm really interested in but it's it's the same my, it's my same approach that i have with everything i question everything i digest it all and then i just kind of process it on my own critique basically or my my own kind of just the way that i look at it what 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 i value you know and i do the same thing with design you know or anything else too when i look at some of your portfolio of work what's really interesting about it is is a lot of it is intriguing so you use quite a lot of patterns quite a lot of repetition but there's something especially some of the kind of the video files that you've either got on your your site or on, on vimeo and, and other places that i've seen you kind of get drawn into that then there's experiences in themselves and I guess games are a good way of building out that experience and then having people involved in it a bit more rather than just observing and or watching they're they're interacting in some way yeah that's the beauty of games I think the beauty of games and the power of it is it's it's the it's like art cubed basically 
it's not finished from the artist. It's finished by the, the consumer. It's finished by the, the experience that, that the consumer has. So they finish the art form, which is really great. A lot of some films are like that too, but I think with games, the experience aspect is really the missing piece. I think that is what's going to connect us all. And I think that's, that's, I think games, and I think there's another term for this. I would say like, I don't know, digital experiences or whatever. I don't know. We need another name for this because it's not, I don't think these things that I'm talking about are games or I think the interactive aspect of games is really where the power is. And when you really engage in that and you really find and foster that and you, you see it in like tribes and cults of games, like you see like Fortnite is the big thing now or League of Legends and and all that stuff. They, they, there's these esports and all that stuff. It's really quite interesting. I think that's because they've curated and managed to foster like tribalism and like a, a cultish like following basically i'm not really interested in those games necessarily but i think that the involvement of team and interaction and and the human spirit it lives deeply in those games every game is made for just like movies are they're they're made for different types of people you know mm. some games are made perfectly for certain minds you know like um, candy crush or these puzzle games or these ipad kind of games and stuff like those games work for certain types of people and games like Journey work for me because I'm like a, a weird thinking abstract mind. And when I played it, I was like, wow, I'm in like a painting. I'm in a poem. And it's a, a beautiful experience. It's not even a game. It's just like an experience. And with Inside, it's like, I'm only bringing these up because these are the most recent games that I've played. There's obviously other games that are really great too, but the older games usually frustrate me. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is your podcast, the collective podcast, which you're almost at 200 episodes of. That's been going for five or so years, I guess. Can you tell me a little bit about starting that and you know, why did you start it in the first place? And is it something that you're planning to do for for a long time coming or how are you feeling about it these days as well? Yeah, the podcast originally started just out of my desire to connect with other artists I think the thing that I really love about art more than anything is is you can remove your gender, you can remove your creed, you can remove all those things for the most part, and you just look at the art. For me, I think that when I encounter that, I love seeing somebody's art that I connect with emotionally or intelligently or whatever, and I love just reaching out to that person and having an honest conversation and sharing that with the world is, I feel like, to me, is a gift, and that's really what the podcast is about. It's, that's the only agenda. It's not something I do for money. It's not something I do for anything other than I'm just curious. Deep down, I feel like it's important to give back and to help other people. And so many times, the lessons that I've learned that I wish I was told, because you don't need to always fall to to succeed, you know. No matter what you're going to do, you're going to fail. But it's some, some of these lessons, people don't need to learn these kind of lessons because they're just kind of a waste of time. I try to use the, the, the podcast as a mechanism to help people through things like create a block and all those things or time management or, you know, like strategies basically to, to live a prolific life. And I think for the podcast and their duration, there was a time where I took a little bit of a break from it because I was so busy and I didn't realize that people were listening to it. It actually has a really big loyal fan base. I, I don't do Google Analytics. I don't pay attention to any of that kind of stuff. Um, but when I did stop doing it, I got a lot of messages and notifications and all these kind of things like, oh, when's it coming back? I miss it. It's important for me and, and stuff. And so I was like, okay, well, I didn't know that, but I had to come back on my own terms So because I'm selfish with it. So <laughs> eventually came back to doing it. And yeah, we're almost on episode 200. I've been doing it for almost five years. My friend Andrew helps produce it. 
I don't know how long it's going to go, honestly. I think it's going to go for as long as I'm curious and wanting to share those conversations with people. It could go on for another five years, it could go on for another month. I really don't know, and it'll stop and end whenever it feels right. And that's the beauty of it. There's no strings attached, you know? And I don't like, I like things that are that pure, because the podcast for me has to be this, like, very honest, open place, you know? I've had guests say, oh, can you edit that out? And I'm like, I really would rather not, because I want it to be as real and direct as possible, you know? So maybe they get a little mad at me, but I don't want it to be disingenuine kind of thing where it's not a real direct conversation with the flaws and the ums and the ahs and the bad answers, you know? I I find beauty in that. I I get a lot of that from, like, listening to Joe Rogan's podcast and there's a lot of different podcasts I listen to, but I, I just love those those moments that, oh, this person's really being real, or this is real advice, or this is real feedback. This is authentic, you know. In a digital age, we're always hunting for authenticity, and I try to, to give that with the podcast. I've found that speaking to lots of creative people, some people have quite a difficulty with creativity in itself, that it can feel a bit of a burden. So one person, uh, an artist called Layla Johnson, she described it on the podcast as, as something that she can't stop. It's some people will say to her, "Why don't you go do this other job?" Or you know, you're you're smart and you you might make more money doing something else. But she says, "Well, I couldn't. I couldn't stop myself creating." I might as well do it as a job because there is no way I can stop doing it. And if I'm not doing this thing over there, I'm going to jump and go and do something over there and use a different medium. What's your feeling about that? Because it sounds like you're quite prolific with the amount of things that you do and going from creating work for film or creating podcasts or jumping between different mediums. How do you feel about creativity in general? I love creativity. That's what I would actually title myself as whenever anybody asks me. I just say I'm just a creative. Now, what does that mean that I have to break it down? But for the most part, that's all I am. And when you're talking about her being so possessed with like, well, this is my life. This is what uh, consumes me. This is what I, you know, I might as well do as a job. That's my kind of people. I love that. And I love hearing that because then I don't feel so alone because so much of who I am is I'm so passionate about being creative in all different aspects. Like right now, I'm like designing a car for like a famous race car driver. And then I'm working on my own personal films. And I just worked on a documentary for Netflix. It's definitely there. I'm trying to be as prolific as possible and creating as much as I can. I have been figuring out methods and ways to interact with my creativity. My inspiration was always my biggest fear that I would have a career or a job and I would have to like deliver on time and I wouldn't have the mechanisms within myself to deliver high quality work continuously at a regular basis. And I've managed to figure out how to do that, how to manage creativity, how to navigate its pitfalls and ups and downs and stuff. But um, ultimately, I just love being creative and it's like really what I think defines me. So I'm like a very passionate creative person, I would say. That's basically who I am. I was just thinking about you just now In which country and in which town How you doing? I hope that you are okay I was worried about you now That was Ash Thorpe and our interview. Personally, I found it a fascinating insight into film production and what it's like to be a graphic designer in that process. Of course, if you enjoyed listening to Ash, you should definitely check out the Collective podcast, which you can find wherever you found this one. Also, 
Ash wanted to leave you with one thought about you and creativity. If you're hearing this conversation, if any of this connects with you and you feel creative or, you know, in any kind of way, you might not necessarily align with my creative path, but if you're creative with like, you know, code or your process of taking care of something or problem solving or building an app to help the humanity or um, whatever it might be, but if you somehow connect with this, I'd say no matter what you do in life, you should find what you're most passionate about and dedicate everything that you have because you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the rest of the world to do so. Because when you live to your full potential, it just makes for a better life for everybody, yourself included. Wow, what a lovely way to finish the episode. So that's all the time we've got for this month. I hope you enjoyed it. And also I hope you enjoyed some of the new music. We had a few different little tunes playing throughout this episode. And if you thought that actually we could do a bit better with some of the music, then why not get in contact with us and send us some? We're always looking for some content from some of our listeners. Otherwise, all that's left for me to say is thank you again for listening. We'll be back again next month with some more interviews. In the meantime, take very good care of yourselves. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.